All right. Have you ever faced Have you ever faced something that you thought you couldn't do on your own? That you thought that you could and maybe you found out that you couldn't. A few years ago, we bought my wife and I bought these Costco sheds. We bought two of them. And they have those things on there that says, I think it says two, but as I'm thinking about it now, I think it might have said four people that are needed. And, you know, uh, the facetious comment is, I'm a man, I can do it on my own. Um, so I tried. Uh, I did. Um, I'm that guy who sees the box that says two people require, and I say, nah, I got this. But as we look at Genesis 2, and if you have your Bibles with you, look at Genesis 2, we need to see that this isn't a separate creation account, but it is a zoom in, it's an amplification of what we've seen in Genesis 1, because it's here that we see how God has created more than one person to accomplish a single task. I once heard a, I heard a, pr- a preacher, or a speaker, I'm going to say speaker, uh, this week, who said that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are separate accounts, and they were trying to create a false dichotomy, a separation between these two, saying that uh, they were different, and, and using terms like, well, asking the question, is it theological or historical? And my response to it, it's both. It is theological, 100%, because it's talking about who God is. It's also historical, because it's an account of how God created the heavens and the earth, and how God specifically uh, created humanity. And this is a zoom in of what we see God doing as he creates the pinnacle of his creation, creating man and woman. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be starting at verse 4 of chapter 25, or uh, sorry, all the way to 25 of chapter 2. So the word of the Lord says this. These are the generations of heavens and earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to, uh, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10. A river flowing out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first one was Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Hivalah, where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. Delilium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed from the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the lord god had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man the man said this is at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she has taken out because she was taken out of man verse 24 therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we come together to continue to worship you as we listen to the preaching of your word. Lord, I come to worship you as I preach your word. And Lord, you know very well that there's no possible way that I can make this turn out well on my own. Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. God, I pray that you would use this sermon to bring glory to your name above all things, that you would also bring joy to your people. Lord, may we see you save people. So as we continue in our sermon series of Genesis, we see three things, how God created man, how God creates woman, and how God creates marriage. Those are the three things that we'll be looking through as we see how God creates. Verse 4 says, these are the generations. And this is a language that is used throughout the Bible. We see it all over the place. Now we are, we, we're going to get into seeing what has happened after God has created the heavens and the earth. This is the history of what follows what God has done. But did you catch that there's a name change in chapter 2? See, because all before, as we see in chapter 1, God is the name that is used. Elohim which means that God is sovereign, which makes sense because God comes and he creates by his voice, by his word, he begins to create everything. He speaks and it's done. He is sovereign. He is providential. He is the one who is in control. It's how we can sing the songs that we sing today. But then there's that name Lord that's added to it, Lord God. This is an addition the word there is it's all in caps in the English translation, which means it's Yahweh. This is the personal name for God. It's a relational word of who God is. As God creates humanity and man and woman, there's a personal relationship that humanity is created for when God is being used this way, when his name is being used this way. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is a promise-keeping God. He is the one who fulfills all his promises. And even in this name, it points to how Jesus Christ fulfills all the requirements of the law. Because if you're going through that, as Dave did so well, you really begin to realize that you can't keep any part of that law. Because we've all lied. We've all stolen something. We've all valued something more than God. Which means in itself, it is condemning. But Jesus Christ fulfills it perfectly. And in verse 5, we see that there's no bush of the field which is in the land. And 
This is the idea that there, there hasn't been someone to tend the land yet. Man has not been created. Humanity has not been created yet. There's no weeds or cornfields that are happening. And that there's water that came out of the ground and, and waters the entire surface of the land. And some people actually use verse 6 as proof text of Scripture as, to say that Scripture is a metaphor rather than something that's narrative. And I would actually say that's not true. And science actually proves that because in 2014, there was a Time Magazine article that said there is more water, seven times more water underneath the mantle of the earth than there is on top of it. Which means that there's more water that's deep down under the ground than there is on top of it, which is crazy to me because if you look at a picture of the earth, there's a lot of water. And then verse 7 comes, and the Lord God forms. A personal God comes with a personal touch to form his image bearers. What a picture of an intimate relationship between God and man, between God and humanity. Like a potter making a work of art, so God does with humanity. He fashioned, he, he created And not like all of the other creatures who just simply spoke into being, but here he he fashions humanity together. He he makes them. This is, as I said before, an amplification of what we see in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. God is the divine potter who uses dust to shape the body of the one who will be his image bearers. What skill do we see here? You know, when I take clay and I try to make something, it, it's not good. But he comes and he makes man from dust from the grounds. And it doesn't really mean much now, but in the context of the next chapter, this is a huge reminder for us. It's a reminder of our frailty. Men and women were created in the very image of God, which is an awesome and mind-blowing thing. It is unique. It is special amongst all of God's creation. But here he comes, and there's a reminder in this. We are made from dust. Genesis 3, 19 says, By the sweat of your face, in response to the sin, this is the curse, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We say this at every funeral when we're doing an interment. An in-your-face reminder of the effects of sin in our lives. But I love what God does later. He comes and he, he breathes into the nostrils the breath of life. Which to me is kind of creepy because, you know, I got personal space issues. But here God is. He comes and he takes of this care you got to think of this care and intimacy of this act what a what a reflection of who our god is and and if you are in christ i think about ephesians 1 that talks about how god loved us before the foundations of the world did you ever dwell upon that just think about it before the foundations of the world before this account god loved you which means that you cannot work any more or any less for him to love you more or less that is a mind-blowing thing to me And I see that enacted right here as God himself bends down to breathe his his breath into humanity. God himself kneels down to the ground and breathes in. God gave all creatures the breath of life, but here is a face-to-face personal 
an incredibly intimate act. God himself is the source of life. He is the one who gives us the breath of life. And Jesus said in John chapter 6 that he is life and that anyone outside of him has no life. And we see that right here. God is the source of life, but life only continues in him. And one of the questions that I was thinking as I was looking at this is, is what do we do with the breath that God has given us? But as we continue on in verse 8, God creates a man and then places him in the garden for a purpose. And this is a place where God invites humanity to enjoy fellowship and peace with him. When I think of Eden, I think of Adam and later Eve walking down whatever path there might have been with God himself. And I go, that, I want that. The reality is that in order to have a special communion with God that we see here in Genesis 2, we need to meet the prerequisites of faith and obedience to live in that communion, communion with God. But Romans 3 says it very well that no one is righteous, meaning that no one has met the prerequisites of faith and obedience. We have all have an inclination of sin. And that was a beautiful thing as we walked through the Ten Commandments because I hope it's a reminder to you of how you are a sinner. And you are considered lawless. And outside of a work of God's grace, you are not in communion with him. You are actually considered enemies of God. But God made it possible for us to have communion with him. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. That through his son who died for our sins and rose from the dead, through repenting, which is that turning away from sin, and believing that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to pay the price for your sins, you can have eternal life. Because it is by abiding in Christ that we can have life. Jesus makes it possible for all of those who repent and believe and repentance to have that life. Because Jesus' righteousness and how he completely and fully and faithfully obeyed all of the commandments is imputed, is given to us through faith. Jesus allows us to have a relationship that we were created for from the very beginning that sin will corrupt. And has corrupted. But in verse 9 we see. And out of the ground the Lord God made a spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and the good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil is there. This is a really quick reminder of who's the one who causes all things to happen. Out of the ground God made it spring out. But what are these trees? Because I think it's a good question. The tree of life represents eternal life. It is the best life. It is available only to those who re-enter the garden through the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, who is the perfect Adam. Because as we will see in, in, in Genesis 3, he really screws up. But through faith in Christ, Jesus is the one who gives life through belief in the sacrifice of the cross. The tree of knowledge of good and evil points to this idea of, of God is the only one who can determine what is good and what is evil. We see this in, in Micah 3 and in 1 Kings 3. 
In Genesis 3, when Adam stood by while not saying anything about his wife taking the fruit from that tree, it was as though Adam was saying that he had autonomy and that he could govern on his own without God. Imagine what type of slap in the face that is. It's a reminder that we live by faith in God's word, not in our own self-sufficient moral judgment. And God's word is what makes wise the simple, and we seek to put all things through that grid. And God begins to describe to us in verses 11 to 14 this beautiful place of great abundance, of fancy stones that no one can afford, and gold, good gold. But there's such harmony in this place in Eden. Something that we will see that sin corrupts, And it's something that in Christ we get a taste of even here today. But we long for this to come back. In this created order, we see men are created for a purpose. But even in that purpose, God stills man as being alone, which is why in verses 15 to 23, God comes and he creates woman. God takes the man and puts him into the garden for two things, if you see in verse 15. For two reasons, God puts him in this garden to work it which is this idea of tilling the garden and to keep it so again think of gardening or farming or or something like that he's he's working with his hands remember there's no shrub of the field that yet have grown and no plant of the field that had yet sprouted. so god places man to cultivate these things thinking about like weeds and corn and you know, I love going for a country drive. Every time I see my in-laws, we have to go through the country. And, and when you see the wheat fields at full and all of the, all the corn fields and all those other things that I don't know um, because I'm a city slicker. But when I look at how God has placed man into the garden to work it, I think it's th- something that we need to rethink ourselves. We need to really rethink our work of theology. Because I think a lot of us think that work is an outcome of sin. But sin hasn't entered into the world yet. Which means that God comes and creates man and puts him in the garden to work it. Now, the hardships of working are an account of sin. And things do get harder after Genesis 3. But when we come with this idea that when we get to heaven, we're just going to get to sit in a lazy boy all day long. And like let like, little angels come and feed us grapes and stuff. That's not the case. It is going to be going back to what God has originally intended it to be, which includes work. We know this, right? If you don't work, you begin to fall apart very quickly. Jesus will come back and he will be the final solution and the effects of sin on that work will be gone. And we will once again enjoy a blessing of the new heavens and the new earth where there will be work. Then he comes and God says, you must also keep it, which is this idea of watching over and and guarding. The job that God gives a man is not only to be like a gardener, but also a guardian over what God has created. You know, I'm not an environmentalist in, in any sense. I like my gas car. However, We are called to care for the things that God has blessed us with. Let us care for what is around us. 
Like, don't be the person who's throwing garbage on the ground or something. Like, you've got two legs, use them. The job that God has given the man is not just to be there, but to also watch over what he has created, just like we see in chapter 1. But there's still something missing. Even with all of this, there's still something missing. A man still needs something more in order to be faithful to what God has called him to be. There's still a loneliness, an aloneness that is here, but we will get there. Because in verses 16 to 17, we see that God's first words to Adam are actually a command. He says, a command to eat any tree you want, but not the tree of good and evil. Which is why you, like, you see those cartoons where it's like a giant red button that says, do not push. I think that's probably what's happening at this moment. Why? Because if they eat it, man will die. There's an immediacy to these words. This isn't something that's going to like maybe happen, but like, no, this is once you eat that fruit, you're done. And it's going to be physical and it's going to be spiritual, as we will see in the next coming weeks. And why not eat this tree? Because again, it is a picture of God is the one with moral authority over all things. That's why we go to God's word all the time. It's not about what I say or what Joey says or whatever. It's about what God's word says. And not seeking to be faithful to it because it's the moral authority. And what did God send? And who did God send this command to? I know it's an obvious question, but it's an important one. He gives it to Adam. What does this show? I think it shows that God has given a certain sense of responsibility and leadership to the man. The role has the responsibility to guard and care for all of creation. And as we will shortly see, it is also the role of leadership and responsibility in marriage. Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 23, or 33 talk about this very clearly. You know, when Steph and I were first married, we were having a, I remember these chilling words that she said to me, and we were discussing some marriage issues, and before someone smart comes up to me and says, oh, you got issues, yeah, don't you? Like, if you guys aren't arguing and you're married, like, I got, like, either you're like God, which you're not, or you're lying to each other, so pick one. Both are sin, by the way. All married people should talk, and all married people argue. But she says these words to me. She says this, I just want you to be happy. They're chilling words that are still in the back of my mind, uh, even to this day. And I think that might have been, like, we've been married for almost 20 years, and that was probably, like, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago. When I hear those words in the back of my mind, it reminds me of something that I'm so weary of hearing out of the mouths of wives, daughters, just women in general, they say these words, there are no men to lead. Brothers, and I'm speaking to you men right now, women, please listen, because now you have something. For you single women, this is what you look for in husbands. This is a travesty. This is something that needs to be repented of. And we need more men who will live godly lives, who will be an example of what God has called them to be. And we need more men who know the costly headship that they are called to. 
what it means to lead your families well. And God created two genders, male and female, with equal value but with different roles. I love how Rosaria Butterfield says it in her book. The order of creation made a point. The sexes are equal in essence and different in social role. You know, this past week, I think it was this past week, maybe two weeks ago, Joelle was having an interview for a job that she was. Yeah, it's, side note, it is weird when your kids have interviews for jobs. I, I don't think I'm this old yet, but apparently I am. And one of the questions was this, who are your greatest examples? You know what her first one was? My dad. It is only by God's grace in my life and how God has used my beautiful wife to show me what God has already commanded me to do, that that is even possible. It's because God placed other men in my life to show me what that means, because Titus 2 is a command. It's a testimony of God's grace in my life, and men, we need to get our heads in the game. And I praise God for some of you who are doing this faithfully, but you have to look at your lives, and some of you are not. I praise God for those people who are. And if you want an example, go find a man who is. Just look at their life and then look at God's word and say, I want to be like that. Your families need you to be. Your church needs you to be there. See, the pattern that we see in scripture is that headship initiates submission support. Husbands, your wives should not be the one who says, hey, let's pray, or hey, let's do a Bible study, or hey, let's whatever. I'm not saying that your wife cannot say, let's do this, but the person who's saying, let's do this, should be you, because to say, let's do something, means you're taking initiative, which means that you're leading. And they could go like this. The husband says to his wife, hey, can we talk about our finances and make sure that we are living in our means and honoring the Lord with our money? And then he might continue on, which is something that I would say, I'm not very good with these numbers. And you are a math major. So how about you keep taking care of the writing of the checks and paying the bills and so on? But notice who's taking the initiative in that conversation. And I hope you see what it means to be a helper as we break this down even more. It's not about one being lesser, or it is about roles and responsibilities. God did create man to have a sacrificing headship in marriage. And we see that right when God comes to Adam and says to him, you shall not eat of this tree. Because in Genesis 3 comes along and we see that Adam is literally standing right beside his wife as she eats the apple, or not apple, sorry, Chris, Pastor Chris is going to get me for this one. Fruit of the tree. Because I grew up in Sunday school, and what is the picture? As an apple. It's not an apple, guys. I had a friend who used to make the theological argument that it was a tomato, because he hated tomatoes. And that's what God sees in verse 18, that man is alone in the task that is given him. So the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone, and I will make for him a helper fit for him. The word helper isn't talking about someone who's stronger or weaker, but about somebody who is fit for somebody else. 
the one who matches each other. You ever look at a married couple and you're like, you guys are exact opposites. My wife and I are an exact opposite. She's nice, I'm not. We complement one another. And it's not good for him to be alone, he says. So God makes him a helper. And God created a helper to work alongside Adam in the guarding and the farming of the garden. To be fit for him is the idea of a complementing relationship. What the man lacks, the woman supplies, and vice versa. While both sharing the image of God. And I want to be clear, when, when God says that man is in need of a helper, he's not talking about his inadequacy, and he's not talking about her inferiority. I know this, I know this because God himself describes himself as a helper. So if that word becomes a curse word to you, you really need to rethink about who your God is. So before someone comes and says, I'm misogynistic or a bigot or something, God himself calls him a helper. The Holy Spirit is described as a helper. The word has nothing to do with value. Because God is far more valuable than you or I. And he is about roles. It's about created order. The men and women were created to complement each other in the service of God because we see in verse 20, God gave him the task of naming all of these animals and even after that, there was no right to match for him. The man gives names to all of these things and he's looking around and he's going, yeah, that elephant, not going to be a good partner. Tiger, not a good idea. Cheetah, mouse, a little small. Bird, I can't fly. I have a job, but there's a task. It was too big for him to do on his own. Why? We see later in this verse, it says, but for the man, no helper was found as his complement. See, what does it mean to be a helper for you? What does God mean by this? You know, this week uh, on Thursday, I was in Burlington for a, a basketball tournament for one of our kids and you know it's never the husbands that are there so I'm hanging out with all the moms which was great because I asked them this question <laughs> which they didn't appreciate I said what does it mean to be a helper for you and they laughed at me because we're friends they're friends that Steph and I are friends with their, their families and they just laughed at me they're like that's kind of thrown up on us like what like you gotta give us some time and i did i went to mcdonald's and i got my kids some lunch and i came back and i was like there's plenty of time to think about this they were showing off their powers of multitasking as one was working on a work proposal i think for her business and the other one was filling out paperwork for her practice as they're typing away and they like this is a hard question but one of the moms said this being a helper is uh, about the heart about posture he says. The other one is, says it's about submission, which then led to some really good conversations. But at the end of the day, what they were communicating is like being a helper is about a heart stance. Because submission in a marriage looks differently for my marriage as it may for yours. But at the end of the day, it's about my heart first before God and then towards others and then towards my wife and, to, and from the wife to the husband. And as we look at creation, there is no other living creature that complements a man. 
God knows that it is not good for Adam to be alone. So God makes a counterpart, a partner, someone who will complement him or help him. So in the created order, there's a head and then there is someone who is submissive. And I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about what submission is not, because I think this is important. John Piper has a great article on this called Six Things Submission Is Not. He lists them. Submission is not agreeing on everything. You can talk to my wife about this. It is not about agreeing on everything. It doesn't mean leaving your brain at the altar. It doesn't mean that you don't try to influence your husband. It doesn't mean putting the will of your husband for the will of Christ. It doesn't mean getting all of your all of your, the wife's spiritual strength through your husband. You are called as a Christian made in the image of God to get into God's word and to learn about who he is and, and be a theologian of what he is. Husbands might have been commanded to do this, but at the same time, uh, it does, submission does not mean living or acting in fear. You know, husbands, you have been commanded by God to costly headship. And just as Christ is the head of the church who gave himself up for her, which means submission flourishes from biblical headship. To be a helper is to be submissive, but not less value. Like That's what we see in verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. I got this thing for like when we're talking about people's surgery, I finally get like these phantom feelings. And like my side suddenly starts hurting as I'm reading this. But it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture that God paints for us as, as we see how God created man and woman as equal and valuable in his eyes. Just as God formed man, he also forms women. And as God created male and female, both equal in his eyes, in verse 23, he designs them with different roles and he brings them together. This is what God created. He created this thing called marriage. God created one Eve for Adam, not multiple Eves. Marriage is not, it, sorry, marriage is to be heterosexual, monogamous, because it is, it is the pattern that God established in creation. And even more, it is the picture of Christ and his church. One pastor put it this way, marriage was first instituted by God in the order of creation, given by God as an unchangeable foundation for human life. Marriage exists so that through its humanity can serve God through children, through faithful intimacy, and through proper order of sexual relationships. This union is patterned upon the union of God with his people who are his bride, Christ with his church. Within marriage, husbands are to exercise a role of self-sacrificial headship. While the posture of a wives is godly submission to their husband. This institution points us to our hope of Christ returning to claim his bride, making marriage a living picture of the gospel of grace. So God puts both Adam and Eve into the garden together to keep the garden, and the roles of men or women are, are part of that created order. Our value is not found in our role. Okay? Because you might be a, a, a mechanic or you might be a lawyer. doesn't make one more valuable than another in our own culture. 
But God shows the ultimate way that men and women complement each other but creating the closest relationships possible, which is what marriage is. As we see in verses 24 to 25, God creates marriage. Because God is the one who creates man and God creates woman and God creates marriage, he is the one who gets to define what they are, not you and me. So God is the one who created marriage with the bonds that are the closest relationship among humans to, to the point that the obligation that are created in marriage overrides the duty one has to their parents. Right? That's what he's talking about. Therefore, the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Which means moms and dads, and I'm saying this to myself, I hate to break it to you, but when your son and your daughter go off and get married, their priority is now their spouse, not you. So if you're meddling, stop. Get back and let them work on things. Be their supportive parents, you know, all that fun stuff. But stop meddling. Stop, and this means for married folk. It means stop going to your mom and dad before you start talking to your spouse. It means that you've come together, you're cleaving together. The biblical view of marriage, as Christopher Ashe says, is a God-given voluntary sexual and public social union of one man and one woman from different families, key point, for the purpose of serving God. And for all of you parents who have kids in here, I have to talk about one flesh. So good luck talking about this with your kids later. That means one unit. It means they're together. It's not them plus the parents. It's not them plus their best friends. It means they are the unit. They are the ones who are created to complement one another which ultimately shows itself beautifully in a God-honoring marriage. This is a union between one man and one woman, which is consummated in intercourse, sexual intercourse, meaning that God is the one who even created sex, and that it is good within the boundaries that God has created, which means that he all is also the one who gets to create the purpose of that sexual activity. And as we see in Genesis 1, that one of the outcomes of that is to be fruitful and to multiply. How can humanity be fruitful and multiply and spread out and subdue the earth if man is alone? It's kind of hard. Parents, can I challenge you to do something? And I think the church has done, and I was a youth pastor for 11 years. And I think the church has done a pretty poor job at this. Talking about sex is a taboo subject within the church. And I'm not talking about the crassness and all of those things. But we don't talk about it. And we don't talk about it from the perspective that God has made it to be. That it is good and beautiful in the context and the boundaries that God has created it to be in. Between one man and one woman who have publicly committed themselves to each other. For you younger people, it means that intimacy and sexuality and sex 
gets better over a longer time. In a standing godly marriage, it is gets more beautiful, gets more good. The way that God designed it to be. And when it takes, when it's taken out of marriage, sex becomes cheap. But it is valuable in God's eyes. But sex also is more than just a functional or an act or something like that. It also plays a function of procreation. Teach your kids these things. Because on a side note, they will find out. They will. Like the statistics. Like if you're a parent and you have teenagers, do not assume that your kid is not looking at porn. Assume they are. And that's where they're learning about sex. But God has defined it in a certain way. As something that is beautiful and good. And God says... Teach our kids this. And I'm going to go back to parents, specifically fathers, and say, you're the ones that should be saying, let's talk about this. Because they're going to learn about it. It's on the playground. It's by accidentally clicking on a link. If it's those junk mail things that they always have, whatever it may be. But God created it. And as we see in verse 25, and the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. <laughs> That's some marriage counseling right there. See, before sin enters into the world, do you see the harmony? Do you see how God created the relationship between man and woman and then how he created the, the relationship between husband and wife to be? It is so beautiful and so good that even in their nakedness, there was no shame. And I don't care who you are, the husbands are always wondering, am I adequate enough? And the wives are like, oh, my roles. Not here. There's no shame. There's absolutely no shame. They're just standing there looking at each other going, hey, how you doing? You see how chaotic sin is in our world. It's not that God, see, God is still in control, but there are consequences to sin. And I look forward to the day when Jesus gets all of this out of the way. And, and on a future note, Jesus is very clear, there's no marriage in heaven, so, but that's another sermon. But I do know at the beginning of time, there was no shame. Even in the most intimate of relationships between a husband and wife, there was no shame. Marriage is rooted in God's created order, which means that culture doesn't get to dictate what it should look like. It means that God's word gets to dictate what it should look like. Culture doesn't get to dictate what is a man or what is a woman. God dictated that already. God dictated how those relationships are supposed to work. Now, they could be unique and different and, you know, whatever works for your relationships. But they are there and God has defined them. God brings Adam and Eve together and they are united as one. 
that does include sexually. It is here that we see the definition of marriage and what it looks like. It is to be exclusive. It is supposed to be permanent, and it should produce offspring. We see this in First Genesis in Genesis 1, verse 28. And I really like the definition that I read this week. The submission of a wife is a voluntary submission, an expression of her godly submission to God. The headship of a husband is to be costly. Headship. Why? Because it is patterned on Christ's love for the church. Men. Like, I want you to go home and think about what that means for you as a man. At its best, this pattern is beautiful and life-giving. It may be subverted by a tyrannical husband. It might be subverted by a husband, or sorry, a wife who fails to be a partner with her husband, but is simply passive. It might be subversive by a rebellious wife, and it might, might be submissive by, by a husband who's abdicating his responsibilities. But God has already defined what marriage, what men, and what women are to be. And I praise God for godly marriages that exemplify these things. In Rosaria Butterfield's book, she talks about the impact of those godly relationships on her and how God used that example to call her out of darkness and into light. Rosaria Butterfield, a quick synopsis of her story, was a tenured English professor. Okay? Liberal arts, highly feminist, in a lesbian marriage. By God's grace, called her out of that darkness, brought her into light very slowly. She's now married with four kids. Married to a pastor. Like, that's grace in itself, right? Yesterday, one of those moms that I was talking to, I was so moved by this because we were actually were talking about a teacher at our school who was an elder at her church and the impact that that marriage was on her. As she's doing her residency in the hospital, she is seeing an example of what it means to have a godly marriage. And it's, she still talks about it 20 years later. God creates marriage between one man and one woman as a picture of the gospel. So what, you may ask? God created man and woman to complement each other to serve God. You know, building my sheds, back to that story, I eventually clued in because I think the sheds are like 10 by 8. And, my, and I'm 6'1", so I think they say that your arm span is your height. I, I think that's what they say. Except I have claws and arms, as I say, so they might be longer. I really eventually clued in that I couldn't reach the two sides of the walls. What did I have to do? Called my wife. Help me in the task that I need to get done. God didn't create us to be alone, but to be man and woman who were created to complement each other for the task of serving God. This isn't a question of giftings, but roles. Our culture puts a value in what we do and how we contribute, but God puts a value in that we were made in his image to be image bearers. And when we all submit to God first, everything seems to just work out. We bring him glory when we serve him in the roles that we were placed in us. When I do premarital, I hammer one thing all the time because I know for a fact they're not going to remember everything we talk about. Fix your eyes on Christ. 
everything will be okay. Together and individually. God placed man in the garden with the task of keeping and working. And God knew that he couldn't do it alone. So he, he created a helper to, to uniquely create him in that task. And this is what we call in our doctrinal stance as a church complementarianism. Meaning that by God created differences in men and women as a normal pattern of these two sexes. This is an idea that gets a lot of flack in our world. Because we think that whatever a woman can do, a man can do. And whatever a man can do, no, no, we don't ever talk about whatever a man can do, a woman can do actually. But we were meant to complement each other because we have weaknesses. For example, I have uh, friends of mine who are uh, MMA fighters. I don't know why. I know. And I, I, I said to them once, I'm like, what do you think about this whole transgender thing? It's like, man, I, could, I will break the neck of a woman if we're MMA. We know biologically we're made different. But even more, God has established those things. Ephesians 5 is rooted in the gospel. Men's example for leading the family is how Christ leads the church. How does Jesus do that? By sacrificing himself for his bride. Leadership in the home is a costly headship. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And the example of self-sacrificing is the standard for husbands to lead. The example for a wife is the example of the church to Christ. And what a beautiful picture that that reminds us of. That is rooted in Genesis 2. I, uh, once, not too long ago, someone came to me and said, all of those passages in the New Testament, like Ephesians 5 or, or Matthew 19, are all cultural things. The problem with this is this, is that Jesus and Paul root all of their arguments all the way back to Genesis 2 before sin. So either they're wrong or I'm wrong. I praise God for my wife. I praise, her, praise God every day. She compliments me in every way. I'm a better leader in my marriage. I'm a better leader in my family. I'm a better leader in my church because we complement each other. God created man and woman to complement each other to serve God. Again, that definition, we see this in the created order, both man and woman, to complement each other in the keeping and watching of the world. Let us worship God together as we reflect upon how good our God is. Father, we just thank you for the reminder in your word of what you've called us to do and to be. Lord, the task is uh, impossible. So, Lord, by your grace, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. Lord, I pray for the men of this church that they would see what it means to have costly headship, exemplified by what you have done for us, your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that our marriages would be pictures of the gospel wherever we may go. May we testify of your goodness. Thank you, Pastor Nate, for bringing the word of God to us.